0: This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.
1: Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is uh, writing the last letter that he writes to the churches. He's in in prison in Rome. It's uh, somewhere 60 to 62 A.D., um, Jesus has, uh, uh, been dead 27 to 28, 29 years, something like that. When Paul writes this letter and, uh, Paul will soon be released. Uh, well, we assumed it soon. He will be released from prison in Rome. Uh, and then about two years later, he'll go back into prison and write his final letters, uh, personal letters, letters that he wrote to Timothy and to Titus. Uh, Paul is, um, Writing the, the the most grand of the letters that he wrote to the churches, in the sense that this is not uh, doctrine point after point after doctrinal point after point after point, like it is with the Romans and and uh, in some of the other letters, but he's taking an overview, he's backing up and taking a big picture view of here's what the church should look like in the world. Paul has masterfully, by the Holy Ghost direction of the Holy Ghost in the first three chapters talked about who we are in Christ, the work of God's um, great plan of redemption that was ordained before the foundations of the world and uh, the fact that God has ordained for us to be recreated by the Spirit of God through the new birth so that he manifests, God manifests his wisdom, eternal wisdom by our conquering the works of the devil. That's such an important point. So many times we try to figure out how are we going to glorify God? Well, the Bible tells you how God wants you to glorify Him. And that is by exercising authority over the devil so that you walk free from His bondage. That's what glorifies God. That's what glorified God in your life and it's what what glorifies God in the presence of the world. The world is supposed to see us operating in a different manner than they, the unsaved, operate. They are still under the authority of the devil but we... The church, those that have been born again and walking in the knowledge of the word, should be walking free from the chains of the enemy. Paul makes a transition in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Anytime Paul uses the word therefore, or most of the times at least, Paul uses the word therefore, he's making a transition from doctrinal uh, ideas and precepts to practical application. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, if the book had ended at the end of chapter 3, we would have thought, what a wonderful plan God had. But how are we supposed to live up to that? What are we supposed to do now? Paul starts the what you're supposed to do now in chapter 4. And the first thing that he says is he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord again, not the prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I beseech you or encourage you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. There are nine times in the New Testament where the Bible tells us to walk according to something. It tells us to walk in the truth. It tells us to walk in the spirit. It tells us to walk by faith. It tells us to walk in love. It tells us to walk in newness of life. It tells us to walk honestly. It tells us to walk in good works. It tells us to walk in wisdom toward those that are without, meaning the unsaved. But here, Paul says in the ninth one, Paul says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. What does that mean? Well, he's just talked about the vocation or that which we're called to, the high calling of God in the first three chapters. You're called to live the Jesus life here in the earth free from and exercising authority over the works of the devil. He says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Folks, Jesus did not die for the church to drink their little wine and have their little margarita parties and go about their little pet things He died for us to live the Jesus life. And if there is one thing that grieves the Holy Spirit, it's got to be when the church, corporately and us as individuals, you and I are individuals of the church, but when we fail to live up to what He died and shed His blood for. So He says, walk worthy. The vocation wherewith you're called. You know, the Bible gives us a lot of specific things about what to do in specific situations, specific instructions about specific situations. But there's a lot of things also that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do when a situation arises. Well, what should we what should guide us in those cases? What when it doesn't tell us specifically what to do, what should guide us? The precept and the principles of that which we're called to. And when when I talk about being called to something, I'm talking about the calling of the life of God manifest in us, the power of God to defeat the works of the devil. That's what we ought to walk according to. Now, he tells us how to do that in verse 2. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. He mentions four principles. First is lowliness or humility. So he says one of the principles that you're going to have to uh, develop in your life To walk worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for you is you're going to have to develop humility. Don't put yourself forward. Let God exalt you. One thing about it, if you exalt yourself, you leave no room for God to do any work. But if you refuse to exalt yourself, you give God all kinds of room to work second one he mentions is meekness. Now, meekness is not some stand in the corner and hope nobody notices you type attitude. Meekness just simply means teachable. It's amazing to me how few people are teachable. And I think that has to do a lot with with the, the society and the culture that we live in. Because a lot of people, whether it be from embarrassment, they don't want to admit that somebody knows more than them or insecurity or whatever the case is. So many people just refuse to be taught. Well, what hope there is there for you if you can't be taught any more than you know now? I mean, it's not like things are going so great for you now, is it? It's not like you don't need help. But so few people are willing to accept the help. And the only real help that can ever make a difference in somebody's life is the word. So he's talking about being teachable, specifically being teachable by God's word. The next thing that he mentions is uh, long-suffering the word long-suffering is the word patience it just means to be patient with people it means to be able to be willing to put up with things circumstances people situations that aren't the way that you want them to be again it comes back down to not putting yourself forward folks the last principle he mentions is forbearance forbearance is a real interesting word in the greek because it means to stand your ground means to stand your ground. And notice what he said. He said these four principles with humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience, which is patience. And the last one he says forbearance, standing your ground in love. Standing your ground in love.
0: Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing School is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of
1: healing. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as a man speaking the word of God into his heart. You exercising your authority in the name of Jesus by whom you have access into the kingdom of heaven to say that for you, you are free from the influence of sickness and disease."
0: Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the Phi Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.
1: Now, folks, the church is facing a real test in this, this specific area in these days. It's a, it's a very important, very critical time for the body of Christ. And to stand your ground in love means to hold on to the truth no matter what. Well, what would try to pull us away from the truth? Attitudes and opinions of others in many cases. But Paul said that our work is to stand our ground in love. The idea that you're not walking in love because you disagree with somebody or hold fast to what the Bible says is true is just a joke. And that's the work of the church. If the Holy Ghost is telling Paul, is speaking through Paul the truth. So Paul says, with all lowliness, humility, and meekness, teachableness, with long-suffering or patience, standing your ground with one another in love, endeavoring, the word endeavoring means to work hard at Working hard at keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's a a great misunderstanding in the body of Christ about what the work of the church is. The work of the church is not for us to all come together and agree on doctrine. The work of the church is for us to be united in the faith or in the spirit of God rather. We're to be united in the fact that God has made us all one body. We're never going to agree. The church is never going to agree on doctrine until we get to heaven and Jesus judges us. Then everybody will find out I was right. (laughs) Mostly, at least. But we're not going to agree on doctrine while we're here. And to to try to come to the place where we won't fellowship or we won't have anything to do with people that disagree with us on doctrine, that's just ridiculous. For the Baptists to be against the Methodists because they disagree on how to baptize one another is just stupid. For the Pentecostals to disagree or or refuse to fellowship with the Baptists because they don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that's crazy. Everybody's not going to agree. It's never going to happen. Well, what should we do? We should recognize that we're all part of the same body. That Jesus died for one of us just like he died for the others. And even though somebody may not know what we know about doctrine or maybe we don't know something somebody else knows and has found out about the truth of the word, is no reason to stop being family members. Some family members are easy to be around and some are not. Holidays are a good time to be reminded of that. And that's the whole point that he's saying. He's saying that to develop these characteristics will enable us even though it's hard work, will enable us to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Peace should be the the hallmark of the church. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus the Son as being something that we all have in common. Verse 4 again, here's the spirit of God. It says there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. What that very simply means is that um, the holy spirit makes us all one body the next verse verse five one lord one faith one baptism it says jesus gives us all one faith now faith can be used specifically or generally and paul is writing generally please remember that paul did not write to theologians paul is not writing letters with the ideas that, that that everybody is is a Bible scholar and they 're going to split hairs and, and slice and dice the word like we do today that 's not who he wrote to. He wrote to people that were commoners he wrote to people that would understand what he 's writing, and so whereas the Holy Ghost gave him the uh, the well he, he may not have even have even known what he was doing in every every respect but the holy ghost inspired him to write things that we can now take apart and see things that perhaps they didn't see at the time, maybe even see things that Paul didn't even uh, recognize that he was writing at the time. We can see those things, but that's not the general purpose for what Paul wrote. I think a lot of times we miss the meaning of things because we try to get too technical about what's being said or how it's being said. It's great to know some of the Greek words in the Greek language, but Paul didn't write this or the Holy Ghost didn't have this written, or transcribed, translated into other languages to leave out all of those that, uh, that don't know the Greek. Greek can sometimes help you, but Greek can sometimes confuse you too. Because no matter what language you pick, the concepts and ideas of God and heaven are difficult to communicate in earthly terms. So he's saying one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And when he says one baptism, here's where the theologians would get involved. Well, one baptism, does that mean baptism in the spirit? Does that mean baptism in water? Well, Paul is writing to people who have had to tr- change their lives, transform their lives because of their faith in Jesus. When he says one baptism, they're probably thinking about their own experience because in this world that they're living in, the world that the, the, it was written to, the baptisms were a very public show. In many cases, they're having to turn their backs on one thing in order to, to join themselves to the Lord through water baptism so they're probably thinking about their own experience now the one baptism he's talking about is the work of the holy ghost that's illustrated through water baptism because for us water baptism is kind of a convenience it's a choice people choose well yeah i got saved 30 years ago but i've never been baptized so i'll get baptized now that didn't happen in this in paul's day if somebody accepted Jesus, they immediately became baptized because the water baptism ceremony was what everybody recognized as marking somebody's life for Jesus. So when Paul talks about baptism, when, when the Bible speaks of water baptism, it means something totally different than what we experience today. It was a huge deal, especially for the Jews. For the Jews to baptize, be baptized in water in the name of Jesus, it means they're turning their back on Moses in the law. And so that ostracized them from their their families in many cases. It disinherited them in many other cases. It was a huge, huge deal. So here it says Jesus gives us one faith. We believe one thing. Now, you know as well as I do that churches, denominations, believe different things. But we all center on one thing, and that is Jesus died for our sins. And that's what he's talking about. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then the next verse he speaks of in verse 6. He's talking about God the Father. Verse 4 was the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 is Jesus. Verse 6 is God the Father. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, Paul was from the South. Must have been South Tarsus. So Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and here's something else that was used by the Spirit of God many Many years later, in the second century, there was a, a heretic that drew a lot of people away for, to himself by claiming the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the New Testament. The, the creator of the universe of the Old Testament was a different God of grace in the New Testament. Well, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says there's one God who's above all and in all, or through all, and in you all. In you all, who means who? means believers. means the church. The idea that God's in everybody is wrong. He's not. God created everybody. But God is only in and living and dwelling in those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So these are the things that he's talking about that we have in common as believers. Those things that the Spirit of God has done in us, those things that Jesus has done in us, and those things that God the Father has done in us. But then in verse 7, he starts talking about how we're different. Now, again, the whole point is walk worthy of the vocation that you're called to. Walk worthy of the life of God that you've been recreated by. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, he's going to quote the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, this is a little different. Paul quotes it a little bit differently than both the, the Hebrew Text and the Septuagint, which is the Greek, uh, the Hebrew translated into the Greek. The Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus' day. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, or the Hebrew and the Septuagint, it reads a little differently. Instead of saying, Wherefore he gave gifts unto men, it says, Wherefore he received gifts for men. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is that Jesus. In Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus spoiled principalities and made an open show of them. The the, uh, the principle in the old days, Paul's day, the days of the Roman Empire, was when an enemy king or enemy army was conquered, then the victorious king, in most cases Caesar, would parade through town all of the captives that he took from the enemy armies and things like that and everybody would bestow blessings and great things on him. Now, if it was a general that did this, presenting the spoils to Caesar, then Caesar would then give back to the general, the commander of the army, gifts and and many of the slaves or whatever the case was. He would bestow gifts upon him as the, the victorious, uh, as the victor in the army, the victor of the battle. Well, that could be the, what this is saying. If that's the case, then it's saying that God gave Jesus gifts for men because of his defeating the work of the devil. But Paul seems to indicate in the next two verses, talking about Jesus having ascended from the depths of hell, he seems to be referring to the the second school of thought, which is Jesus brought those that were bound in paradise, which is also called Abraham's bosom in the New Testament. He brought those that could not stand before God because the new birth had not yet been accomplished. But when Jesus defeated the work of the devil and the work of redemption was finished, he went to the, those Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom or paradise and he told them, he revealed to them that he was the one that they were looking for to come. He may not have had to reveal that at all. They may have been in a position to see everything in the lower parts of the earth that was going on. We see a little bit of a hint there when the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 16 about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It says that the rich man looked over into paradise and saw Lazarus. Well, if that's the case, he called out, to, that was the case. And when he called out to Abraham, he said, Father Abraham, have Lazarus come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I, uh, and put it, dip it, touch it to my tongue for I'm tormented by this flame. It's possible that, that you could see between those two compartments those two places one was the place of the dead hell or sheol or hades or sheol one's greek one's hebrew and paradise or abraham's bosom in other words the old testament saints might have been able to look over to where the place of the spiritually dead was they weren't spiritually dead they were spiritually uh they weren't yet alive in spirit because they couldn't be uh that couldn't take place until jesus was had finished the work of redemption but it was possible that they could see back and forth from those two areas or parts of, uh, of the uh, the underworld, if you will, even though you couldn't travel from one to the other. Regardless, when Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and finished the work of redemption, he went to that place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, and brought all those that were there waiting for the Messiah to come and took them into heaven with him. The reason that, that that's pro- the probability is for how this should be interpreted is verses 9 and 10. And notice Paul is speaking parenthetically. It puts it in parentheses in the in the uh, uh, King James, and I think it's right. Now, he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts. Notice parts is plural. It didn't say he descended into the lower part of the earth. Now, we know from the Scripture that there's two parts of the lower part of the earth. One is the place of the spiritually dead, and the other was the place of paradise. It says Jesus went both places. See, some people want to say that when Jesus was on the cross and he said to the thief, uh, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Some people want to say, well, see, Jesus just went to paradise. But there's no punctuation. Jesus probably was saying, uh, according to the scripture, Jesus had to be saying, I say unto you today, period, or comma, you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, and I'm going to paradise today. He's saying, I'm saying today that you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus went to the lower parts of the earth, which means he did go to paradise. That's where he took those that were captive, the Old Testament saints, and brought them to heaven with him. But if it's lower parts, then that would also include the place of the spiritually dead. Now that's tough for some people to accept because they don't want to think of Jesus, who was the son of God, being able to die spiritually. But if he didn't die spiritually, and spiritual death is the price for sin, then somebody still owes your price. It's only if Jesus paid the price for the spiritually dead, and there's only one way he could do that, and that is dying the death of the spiritually dead. If he didn't do that, then somebody still has to do that for you to make it to heaven. Thank God he did. So he said, now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. The point that Paul is making is very simply this. Jesus went from the lowest point to the highest point. From the lowest point of hell to the highest place in heaven. For what purpose? Well, back to verse 8. He gave gifts unto men. He gave gifts unto men. Jesus, from this highest point, after being in the lowest part of hell, went to the highest part, was raised to the highest part of heaven, where he gave gifts unto men. Verse 11. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The word and is not in verse 11. It's he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. It's a hyphenated word. Paul made up a word by the direction of the Holy Ghost to tell us the ministry gifts. Now, here's an area that's under much debate in our present day church. And really, it's just in the Word of Faith camp because the, the Baptists don't have teachers. The Methodists don't have teachers. Pentecostals are really the only ones that have traveling teachers. And so there's a great... Desire on the part of some, those that are traveling teachers, to be a five-fold ministry gift. But Paul really speaks of four offices. Apostles, the word apostle means sent ones. Prophet, those that speak for God. Evangelists, those whose message is the good news of Jesus. Salvation only. Salvation only meaning that's their only message is salvation. And, third, and fourth, the fourth office that he mentions is pastor-teachers. Now, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, is putting a great emphasis on teaching in the local church. We understand pastors are not church-wide in the sense that somebody is a pastor over the whole church body. That's Jesus. He's the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. We understand that pastors are for the local congregations. And notice the importance of the connection that he makes between teaching and the, and the pastor of the local church. Now, Paul is the one that wrote Romans. Paul is the one that wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about other gifts that are given unto men. He talks about other grace gifts or graces that are given unto to mankind, individuals that equip them for service, to stand, in the, the, to stand in the place that God has for them in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, it says, God set in the church and mentions apostles, prophets, Miracles, healings, gifts of healings, and um, uh, governments, diversities of tongues and helps and and other things. So this is not an all-inclusive or all-encompassing list that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 4. We know that some people are given to exhortation. Some pastors are given to exhortation. They're exhorters. That means they're encouragers. You've got most of the bigger or the larger churches in America today are pastored by encouragers. We call them preachers, but they're, but they're really exhorters. Notice that Paul did not say that God said in the church, exhorter teachers or pastor exhorters. He said pastor teachers. Notice he didn't say that God said in the church, pastor evangelists. Yet you've got a lot of churches that are built on evangelism because that's what the pastor is given to. The point is very simply this. If the church is going to grow, and that's Paul's whole point, If we're going to walk worthy of the vocation to which we're called, the life of God that we've been recreated by, we're going to have to grow spiritually. We're going to have to grow spiritually. That's his whole theme in chapter 4, is growing up spiritually. If you're going to grow spiritually, there's one thing that's going to do it and only one thing, and that's the teaching of the Word. The Word of God tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. That means to live like God's word is true. Train yourself so that no matter what happens in life, your first question is, What does the Bible say about this? Then do what it says and watch the blessings of God come to pass. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church.
0: This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb.
1: Making increase of the body in the edifying unto the edifying of itself. Notice the last two words in love in love
0: join us Sundays at 9.30am and 6pm or Wednesdays at 7pm visit us online at MikeWeb.tv. Foothill Family Church building strong spirit filled lives through God's word